This is the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden and natural world. I'm your host, Misty Little. The podcast returns this week with a crossover episode from my hiking podcast, Orange Blaze, to bring you Ben Williams of Wetland Preserve in Putnam County, Florida. Ben and his wife, Luann, are Floridians with a deep connection to the land and water in North Florida. After decades in the fisheries industry on the St. John's River, they began purchasing and conserving land in North Florida with a goal to protect the waterways they loved so much. Over time, they've purchased several thousands of acres, many of which border adjacent public lands. Included in their property is one mile of the Florida Trail that traverses the property near Rice Creek Wildlife Management Area. I wanted to include this episode to the podcast because I think it's vital that we understand how our ecosystems work from a broader scale than our home garden and what it takes to functionally restore habitat. That and the fact that you don't necessarily have to be schooled in the environment or ecosystems around you to begin to get an interest in doing something that will benefit the world around you. I've left the original introduction as is and show notes for the episode are at thegardenpathpodcast.com and you can find the podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. I hope you enjoy this very informational episode. You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. And it is adjacent to some areas that we have treated to eliminate or to knock those things back to a more natural area level. There's a lot of gopher turtles up there. There are pine snakes and indigo snakes. We've documented both, which are both species of special concern in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. And so if we can make that project work and the cooperativeness of it such that that 30 and 35 acres is, doesn't sound like very much, but such that that 30, 35 acres functions more usefully for the plants and the animals and everything that live in a sandhill environment, that'll be good. We're going, we're con- working further on our own restoration because the previous landowner planted slash pine up on that sand hill and it's a project to change that and that's going to happen way after we're dead and then we've got a whole lot of stands that are 14 to 16 years old now that are getting ready to be thinned in the next next couple of years one of them we're going to do here in a few weeks and those are going to go into the burn rotation. That was Ben Williams from Wetland Preserve, part owner with other family members of over 3,400 acres in Putnam County, with the largest parcel being directly adjacent to Rice Creek Conservation Area. And I'm Misty Little, your host for the podcast. With this episode, we return back to another landowner segment, a highlight of one of the many tracts of land that the Florida Trail traverses. With roots in St. John's County and the St. John's River, the Williamses began their interest in conservation while in the fisheries industry. Over time, they realized one of the ways to protect their beloved river and its surrounding ecosystems was to protect the land itself. With the purchase of their property in Putnam County and their subsequent parcels, they have been slowly working towards conservation-compatible forestry, an endeavor that will last beyond their lifetimes, as you will hear Ben say in the interview. This conversation is part history lesson and part ecology lesson, and while only one mile of the Florida Trail traverses their land, you will gain a lot of insight into similar habitats the Florida Trail crosses, and gain an appreciation for the hard work it takes to rebuild or maintain an ecosystem while simultaneously attempting to make a living on the land. 
Hopefully it will invite you to slow down and enjoy your surroundings on the Florida Trail and note that the trail connects us beyond what we see around the next orange blaze. A note, this conversation was recorded via a phone call due to the poor signal and internet out there in Putnam County, so the quality isn't that of a typical Skype recording. All right, on to my conversation with Ben Williams. Yeah, and I'd like to talk a little more about some of that stuff. That sounds really interesting. And uh, But maybe, if you're okay, just, just go ahead and start. We'll just kind of, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit. Um, and then I, w- I was doing a little bit of reading about you and your family, and you had a completely different life before you, you came to your property there uh, in Putnam County. How did all of that happen? Well, to say it's a totally different life is, it's true, but it's, not really true because we started out 40 years ago commercial fishing. I mean, we had a little bitty 16-foot rickety crab boat working on the St. John's and running gill nets back then. They were legal to catch stink shad that we used for bait in the crab traps. And it did not take very long out there on that water seeing and having grown up in a culture where there was both a lot of recreational fishing and, of course, the commercial fishing industry, to to realize that if we didn't protect the water, that we were not going to be able to protect either the culture or the economic benefit mm-hmm. that that water produced. And so we started supporting environmental efforts, um, going to meetings, uh, joining things. I was one of the founding members of St. John's Riverkeeper, which is basically 21 years ago, spent 12 years on their board because we saw protecting it from that light. Well, going forward, all that time we still fished recreational, even though we were in the seafood industry, we ended up owning fish markets and having a uh, wholesale business, which we sold about six years ago. Um, we, we still hunted. We still wandered around the woods, went camping, all those sorts of things. And while at Riverkeeper, we would have meetings during our board meetings at times, the discussion of protecting the land as part of protecting the water and how those two were not separable would come up. But yet, how do you do that? Um, you, you know, you can deal with your point source, source problems and your non-point source problems, but how far about, how far can you go in protecting the land that protects the water. And and another component, and this is, I don't want to say it's unique to the St. John's River because I don't know that it is, but a great proportion of the flow of the St. John's River at times comes from our springs, Mm -hmm. which, of course, the water in those springs falls on the land, and it needs to fall where it can permeate down into the karst layer and into through the limestone that it underlies Florida and, and get into the Floridian aquifer. And for all that to happen, you have to have open spaces and you have to have land that is not contaminated. Well, ultimately, when we were able to get to the point where we could buy the land, we sat down and said, okay, what do we want to accomplish here? Obviously, we need to make an income. And at the same time, we saw that we could accomplish a bunch of environmental goods that in a way, tied right, right back to the water. And through our property flows four of the creeks that serve basically as the headwaters of Rice Creek, which flows directly into the St. John's River. And so one of our criteria when we started looking for land was that it be contiguous to state lands. 
and that it had fairly significant water conservation values. And so they are separate lives, hauling crab traps and being dirty and nasty and wondering, yeah. you know, is is very different than what I did today or than when we're doing a timber harvest or when we're doing our prescribed burns. But the way we've woven into this iteration of life and this making a living, living mode, the protection of the land is really – you know, and the, the protection of the resources, that isn't that different. And and the view of it is necessary isn't that different. That was a long answer, wasn't it? Yeah, no, but no, I see how it all goes together, though. I wanted to back up just a little bit because I was curious. You You were noticing that it was imperative to protect the water to keep your livelihood up. Is that an outlier viewpoint, or was other fishermen – seeing the same thing or did they not care like how did that happen well it's it's actually not an outlier viewpoint and i don't know where your listeners are but here in florida and northeast florida especially because the northeast florida is the epicenter of the white shrimp fishery in florida mayport being the central point we have two months closed for white shrimping on the beach and i'm just using this one example okay and that mm-hmm. is april and may and that the shrimpers can't come inside the three-mile limit. Now, the life, so- life cycle of the Atlantic white shrimp is egg that they spawn April, May, June. They might spawn a little longer, and they might start a little earlier, depending on a lot of environmental conditions. Um, but that's sort of the heart of it. And they spawn near the mouths of the bays and the sounds and the rivers and maybe even up into the rivers away, depending on how salty things are. And then those... Juvenile shrimp, they go through a number of stages, work their ways up the estuaries. And the St. John's River being an estuary, obviously, and the white shrimp will go 80 miles and more down the St. John's River. But anyway, that prohibition of dragging with the big commercial boats inside the three-mile limit when the row shrimp show back up to spawn in April and May in Florida, was instituted at the behest of the commercial fishing industry to protect the resources, I think it's been 60 years now. It's been at least 50 years. Hmm. So, you know, it is not a it is not a new thing that the fishermen, the people that make a living from the resource, understand that we have to protect the resource. We oftentimes don't agree with the means being employed. Yeah. Um, and because we tend to not be awfully, how do I say this without causing a problem? Your average commercial fisherman is not all that well educated. They're not, they don't, oftentimes don't show well in a room full of people in suits and ties. Okay. And they're dissuaded from that at times because the the ability to articulate and and make clear your position, um, you know, people don't want to be, looked down on and made made fun of. Yeah. And sometimes there was a reticence to do that. Um, Sometimes there was the feeling that nobody's going to listen to us, nobody cares. I mean, that that was there. And Mm -hmm. then there was always that division between the commercial fishermen and the recreational fishermen, which in my mind has always been somewhat an artificial division. 
Um, they don't understand how much they have in common. But anyway, the short answer, no, I'm not an outlier. I'm not unique in having figured it out. So what was the main – obviously, you mentioned that realizing land was needed to protect more of the waters and waterways and having more of those those protective spaces. What What was impetus for you to really – switch heavily to the land base. I mean, you could have done a million other ways of conservation, but instead you chose to become, you know, a land owner of a huge tract of, of land. And were you always interested in this particular property or were there other properties that you were looking at that just this one, I mean, you mentioned it was next to Rice Creek and Rice Creek flows at the St. John's. So obviously that is the factor, but, um, how did yeah? How did that happen too? I, I I wish I could tell you was a I was a genius, but a dozen years ago we could kind of see the handwriting on the wall um, for the small mom and pop seafood markets, government regulation, um, and segue into politics for a split second. Big business loves reg- regulation because they help write the rules, and they'll write the rules to where the little guys can't really easily. Mm-hmm. comply with them. So we could kind of see the handwriting on the wall for the little guy, for, for the little guys, which we were mom and pop operation. In fact, Luann and I, in the 35 years we were in the fish business, we never took more than five days in a row together off. Think oh, about wow. that for a minute. Yeah. Wow. Never. The first time we took more than five days in a row off in all those years was when we spent seven days or six days and then one day off in prescribed fire school with the Florida Forest Service and um Hill was it Hillsboro Community College who helped Florida Forest Service put it on at the time. That was the first time we had more than five days off. And that included when I had my shoulder reconstructed, my back reconstructed, both hernia fixed, you know, you'd pop a couple of pain pills and go to work. Now you know you can go back to flinging boxes, but you you needed to be there. And anyway, then the federal government passed the Food Safety Modernization Act, and it wasn't just handwriting on the wall. You could see it in the sky. And we had already bought the land because we knew we the concept of retiring doesn't appeal to us. The concept of doing something useful appeals to us. And it, we had figured out that, you know, here's something else we can do, and I can learn for it, and I can learn to do all of these other things, and how to make a living this way, and I have so much control in that I can't um, I can't accomplish or accommodate. Mm-hmm. Another long answer. <laughs> so, how big is the property? I saw, saw 3,400 acres and 3,700 acres is is that somewhere about right? Our our primary parcel, which is where I'm sitting on the front porch of the cabin right now, is I always have to do the tiny bit of math. Is 3,870 acres. Okay. And it encompasses 3,670 some odd acres on the west side of the Rice Creek Conservation Area, which is a 4,000 plus block of land owned by the St. John's River Water Management District, 
and another 325 acres on the southwest side of the same piece of property that butts up against St. John's River Water Management District. And then we have some other properties scattered around Putnam County and in one small piece in Bradford County. And one of those pieces that we've got in Putnam County is pretty good size. It's 720 or 25 acres. We are working it through the process to get it protected. And one of the reasons we bought that particular piece of our property is because it is in what's called the O2O corridor. Is it Okie Finoki to Cal? I always get that mixed up, which is a project put together not just by the North Florida Land Trust, but by agencies and NGOs that are involved in that. And it's to create a essentially a greenway that connects all these things together. And we are in that corridor, in that extra 720 acres, which is really not all that far here, and butts up to additional public lands. It is in that corridor, and we purchased that specifically with the encouragement of the land trust with the idea that we would figure out how to get that particular piece protected also. So you have many pieces of land all over. What are, I mean, what was the state of these tracks before you came in? Were they uh, former pine plantations or or ranches, that sort of thing? And what was the state of them? Well, the primary was owned by Plum Creek Corporation, which is currently part of Weyerhaeuser, and is huge. I think at the time they were the largest landowner in the state of Florida. Um, they had six hundred and something thousand acres. That may not be right, and they had been more than that, but they were they were huge, and they were primarily a timber company. And of course, every timber company that owns a lot of land, they pretty much have a development arm. So because they know they're going to end up with some lands that are slated for development. In fact, if you look on the New York Stock Exchange, you'll see these things called REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts, or I think that's that's not exactly right, but basically. And they, some of the big timber companies are actually in these things. Are their TMOs? That's another acronym that I don't remember exactly what it means. Anyway. This was a piece of commercial timberland, and it had been for decades and decades. Um, and we bought it during, and, and I wish I could tell you that I planned this, but when the economy crashed in 2009-2010, land values, especially non-residential land values in Florida, went through the floor. Um, property values in rural areas, especially in timberland, too, but and, of course, timberland even more so because part of the value of timber is that it's used to build houses. But there was no house building going on. Timber, yeah. Timberland dropped by half. And, and the timber companies, and the, they, they need to show profitability on their balance sheets. Well, sometimes they can property they bought a long time ago which might still be worth more money than it was than it cost them, even though it's worth less than it did two years ago, so they can still show a profit. And they were thrilled that somebody was willing to take a chance on that size piece of property. Um, and I think at the time we were probably the largest timberland sale 
in northeast Florida, if not the whole state. Somebody said it was the whole state that year, but it oh, was. Wow. <laughs> but but again, that's it's not that much land in a normal situation. It's just that we forget how bad it was when the whole thing collapsed. I mean, it, and it's good that we can forget it, but it really collapsed. I mean, they didn't know where the bottom was. Yeah. Of pieces of property that got taken back by banks. Banks were looking for people to take property. So anyway, and it was run as an industrial forest. The roads were minimally maintained only for access when they happened to need it. Um, gates and signage and all those other things were just bare minimal. Three practices were pretty much based on government only. And, and that's, and I'm not condemning that because if you've invested your retirement money in where but it is a different management technique and a different way of caring for the land than what a private landowner will do. So, so it was, it was rough. Okay, yeah. So I guess maybe yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that. You've come onto the property, and you know it's a rough rough transition what is it just you and your family how who and who did you enlist to help you get it into the the state that you have it in today i mean obviously it's been a decade since all of this has gone on and it's obviously you know anybody who owns any kind of sizable land knows that it's a it's a long process to, <laughs> to get the land managed how you want it especially when you're you know, just a few people in your family managing it. Well, but how? Do, yeah, I mean, this just seems like such a big task. It is, but you can't look at it as, oh my gosh, I have to do all this now. It's like so many other things in life. Okay, what can I do next? What can I do next? And and let me step back a minute. I mean, I didn't know anything about forestry. Luann and I didn't know anything about it when we decided that this is that we were going to go on this search and 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 do this thing. And bless the internet with all its problems, and Lord knows it has problems. It also gives you access to research papers and sources of real information, whether it's Tall Timbers Research Station or whether it's Clemson University or whether it's University Florida, Florida IFAS or something over at Auburn or wherever, there is all of this research out there that you have access to. Now, you're not going to get a diploma for that, but if you want it for your own edification and for your own use so that you can apply it on your own land, it's there, and it's basically for for free. In addition, the University of Florida, IFAS, they have a land steward program. And for since the word go, even before we had gone to some of their programs and other things, um, they will have – COVID has put a kibosh on that, but that will all crank back up here shortly. Especially during the spring, there would be a program every week or every other week where you would get to go to a landowner's property or go to a state piece of state-owned piece of property, and the land managers would be there. People that had been working on these things, these things for years. You would have professors from the University of Florida explaining the research. We got to go into Ordway Swisher, Swisher 
which is a huge piece of property in the University of Florida, not here, not too far from here. And they hold, hold symposiums over there. And they bring in these, these professors from all over the country. And you, and, and you almost, you get this information and learning almost for free. So if you want it, you can learn it. And then you're only left to apply it. And then you go out there and try to apply it. And we basically did it ourselves. Now, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that we did, ran every piece of equipment on here because we most assuredly did not. We had, <laughs> had somebody come in and put 11 or 12, 13 miles of fire lines back in, fire breaks between the different stands, which is something that the timber companies had quit doing. They just practiced fire suppression. Oh, and we went right. in. We've worked on all, all of our roads, and the roads here, and, and without pictures, you just can't imagine this, but a lot of the roads here, as you went down them, the little wiry laurel oaks and water oaks and the like had crept out into the roads far, roads far enough where this stuff would be dragging on the side of the truck. Oh. And we had taken and widened all of these roads where they're 30, 40, some of them 60 feet wide, re, redone the, the ditches, um, and they're still dirt, maintaining them. One of the benefits to that is, and the NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service, actually um, incentivizes this, is that when you do that, it's generally referred to as daylighting a road, all of those roadsides become places for native grasses and forbs and the like. Mm -hmm. And that's good for pollinators. It's places for small animals to feed and, and um, hide when they're feeding, and we don't. We will mow our roads. We might mow them twice a year, but generally, the mowing will happen in November. There might be some spot issues dealt with. The rest of the year, we'll basically let the sides of the roads grow, let all of the various grasses and and the like run their cycles. And of course, there's a sequence of these things. <coughs> We're getting ready. All the thistles are getting ready to go off. The dewberries have done their thing already. The blue-eyed grass is all over the roads right now. The wild azaleas are blooming on the sides of the roads. And we let the, the cycle run on these roads. So we fix that. We replace some culverts with low-water crossings, which are better for um, letting more natural water flow. And then we started planting different kinds of trees, and we instituted different kind of stand management. And so we changed a lot of things, and we made a pile of mistakes. In fact, I'm looking right here to the northwest of me, about 80 acres of mistake, which I can't change at this point. And I was told not to by our forester, and I did it. we did it anyway. So, you know, there's plenty of mistakes here, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what's the primary, uh, I guess, pine or timber species uh that you're growing or you have a mix of species? We have we have a mix of species. We've played planted okay. about four hundred and thirty acres or so of longleaf pine. Now most of those longleaf pine are planted in wet flatwoods or semi wet flatwoods, which is not what you would normally consider longleaf pine habitat. Even though they do grow there and the biologists and the, the Foresters will tell you it's called Pinus pollutris, or that's not exactly how you say it, but anyway, which means it has to do with wet areas. Yeah. Once it's established, it will grow. 
And another thing you'll hear is that they grow very slow. Well, sure, they grow very slow when you're growing them on sand hills, which are much drier areas that have poorer soils. But mm-hmm. these wet flatwoods have site indexes of 70 and 80, which means in a 25-year grow a tree an average is 70 or 80 feet tall. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, on a sand hill, you may have site ed- indexes down 20, 30, 40, which means in 25 years, the tree's only going to be 40 feet tall. Hmm. Big, big difference. So the, so the longleaf pine will grow slower in those areas, obviously. So we planted these longleaf. Unfortunately, when we planted 325 acres of them at one slog, we got a load of trees that had poor genetics and we did not plant them the way we've planted subsequent plantings. We used bedding and machine planting of containerized trees, and that did not work out very well. On the other hand, we have about 150 acres of containerized hand-planted longleaf on essentially the same type of sites where we didn't bed, we roller-chopped, we did a light herbicide and we cleaned the site up and then we burned the site off. And then we planted on top of the ancient beds. And we've got some six-year-old stands of longleaf that you just cannot believe. Wow. I mean, people walk in and they say, that can't be longleaf. I say, yeah, that's what happens if you plant that tree in good soil. So we're not going to complete longleaf. We planted about 200 acres of slash pine this year. We're going away from loblolly because loblolly is very susceptible to pine beetles. Mm-hmm. And also, slash and longleaf are more likely to produce higher value products over time than is loblolly because it tends to be limmy and right. knotty. And so we've been focusing on that, those two species, to, when we have to replant. But at the same time, we're basically running long rotation stand management, which means okay. we've got some stands of old loblolly that have been thinned twice. And if money was the bottom line, they should have been clear cut as soon as they were big enough and replanted in something else. But we just couldn't make ourselves do it. Yeah. So, now, anyway. Now, do, do you have any stands uh, that are supporting any red cockaded woodpeckers? Nothing. I say nothing here is old enough. Okay. Um, none of the planted stands are old enough. There are some trees in our swamps and our creek bottoms that are old enough, but it's really not the right habitat. Yeah. And so none none of those, now I don't know how old you are, probably by the time your grand are old, there'll be some trees out here, assuming the next generation and the generation of that manages this the way that we're managing it, and the potential will exist. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm 40, so, <laughs> yeah, it'll be okay, probably too. a little while. <laughs> yeah, that you're just a baby, okay? Just trust me. You don't realize it right now, but you are. Uh, some days it doesn't feel like it, but I, I do understand. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so you've talked a little bit about some of the management, and you've talked about, you know, leaving your roads a little more natural, and, you know, on the website, you talk about conservation-compatible forestry, and I think you've You've, you've hit on some of those topics already, but is there anything you can elaborate that, I mean, 
it, you already have elaborated how you stand out from these timber management, you know, companies. They almost seem like they just don't do anything <laughs> on some of their tracks. How much more intensive is this versus, you know, what other hands-off timber companies are doing? Well, okay, the word intensive. Their stand management is more intensive from the standpoint of doing all of the things that generate a faster return. Because if you plant your trees and you can harvest them and you're and you're obviously planting the latest greatest iteration of the uh from the nurseries and you can do that every 14 to 16 years and at the end of that 14 or 16 years you're putting in a 16 years worth of research and and, and horticulture planning better tree and you go out there and you bed the, you, you bed the site. Sometimes they'll double bed, double bed the site, which basically is like plowing a farm field. Hmm. That's it's you're, you're putting a lot of dollars into the land. You put every 14 to 16 years, you have to herbicide the site. Even though the forestry herbicides, I I, I was very concerned about them to begin with. I've kind of listening to the folks from the water management district and the university. And then considering how seldom you put them out here, I'm not as concerned as I used to be about them. But even then, it's every 14 or 15 years. Whereas in our instance, what we're doing is, and they do have instances where they'll fence and then wait and then go back for a second cutting. All right. And I'm not saying they don't. And they have, they, they do have arms of their, their businesses, which are aimed at doing good because obviously these people live in a community somewhere. Yeah, and they're not—they're not cold and uncaring. I mean, they're—they—they they live there, so they do. They're not bad like people. So you know, they're not these. They're not the villains. Yeah, they're not heartless and uncaring, but they—they they have to do it a little bit more aggressively, and, and we—and we don't, and because we—we we don't have to chase the last dollar out of it. Um. And so we, we manage it differently. And even though ultimately a stand will get to the point where it neither, either needs to be thinned a final time into what's called a seed tree cut and allowed to naturally regenerate, or it needs to be clear cut and replanted. But you can extend that rather from 14 to 15 years to 30 or 40 years. With longleaf and slash pine, you can even go further because they will, if, especially if you've done marked thinnings on the second and third thinning, they're producing poles out there, which are significantly more valuable than pulpwood or chip and saw or even saw timber. And okay. so that's why we kind of, other than the beetle thing, yeah. Um, what have gotten away from the loblolly and more to the slash pine and to the longleaf. Besides that, the longleaf can be, and, and I don't know if you've got this on your list of questions, but one of the things that we do different, and I said intensive is a sort of a one of those questions that it depends on what you're talking about. One of the things when you start planting longleaf or you start doing long rotation stand management where you have thin stands that you can do is you can apply prescribed burns to the land. Yeah. Which in the southeast United States, 
everything here having evolved with pot fire, the, a lot of things absolutely need it. Um, the, the, it is, it's a lot of work to do though. First, yeah. you have to go back and, and think about all those fire breaks and you don't just put them in once and forget them. You put them in with the fire plow and then you work them and work them and work them with the tractor and sometimes you have to go back with a bulldozer and work them a little bit more. And every year when you get ready to use them, you have to go in there and disc them and uh, invariably trees have fallen over them. And so they're, they're, they're a constant source of work. And then of course you have to go conduct the burns. But the, the good that that does environmentally is huge. Huge. And so the timber companies don't do that. That's our intensity there. That's, that's a lot of effort imp- applied in, on our part in a, di- in a direction that they wouldn't apply. Now, is there a, how many year rotations are you doing your fire, uh, burning? And, and that, it depends on what it is we're burning. Because this whole, everything that we're working on here has been fire suppressed for 20 or 30 years. There are layers of duff in almost all the, all the stands. Okay. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them. Well, you can't just go in and throw a growing season burn down on an area with a bunch of duff at the time of year when there would have been naturally been fire. May's the peak of the fire season here in Florida, late April, early May. You can't do that because that duff is a bunch of built-up organic matter, which is going to catch and smolder. Yeah. And then it's going to burn the root, burn and kill the roots around trees and, and not just trees like the invasive gums and all of that that shouldn't be in these pine stands. It wouldn't have been there naturally in the numbers they're in but also the pine trees themselves. So what you have to do is do off-growing season burns when there's still a lot of soil moisture. And you might have to burn and stand three, four, five, six times to get rid of enough of the duff where you can turn around and go to growing season burns. Wow. <laughs> another thing that you have to do, in the, the, and I remember sitting at Orway Swisher listening to the researchers, and I forget where this professor was from, and we had been sort of told that if you'll burn your stands every two or three years, you can kind of knock back the oaks and the gums that had invaded the pine stands. And he says, no. And he says, this is the latest and best research because, you know, science is a moving target. Bless the scientists, they're constantly testing and retesting and then testing something else. And if something turns out to be better, they say, oh, well, we didn't have that quite right here. Do this. And mm-hmm. then you try that. And we could use a lot more of that. But anyway, w- w- he says you have to burn it at least three years in a row if you want to have an effect on knocking back the invaded hardwoods in pine stands. And so in areas where we've got the duff knocked back, once we get the duff knot back, because we're doing those in dormant season, we're not doing as much damage to the hardwoods because those are less intense fire. Yeah. Then we got to turn around and do growing season, try to do growing season burns, which hopefully will be more intense. And we've got some stands we burned six years in a row. Oh, wow. <laughs> but they are, they are, and actually there's two of them like that. 
but they are ready to have a year skip now. We have finally gotten them under control. They're, they're both of them under thinned trees. The hardwoods are really knocked back. The grasses and forbs are great out there. You can see mineral soil in many places. And so there's not really an answer. Once you get to a maintenance burn every two or, two or three years, it's probably sufficient unless something happens. But since so much of what we're doing is restoration, you know, a lot of stands are getting burned three, four, five, six times in a row to get them yeah. to the point. And I'll be yeah. old and dead and we still won't have gotten to all of them. Oh, wow. Okay. I was thinking maybe after, you know, a decade already, you would have already gotten close to getting them where you, oh, where no, they need to be, but no. There is so much to do and we really can't even, I mean, there's so much land, we have no hope of doing all of it. So we're doing as much as we can. I mean, we, we can't do 100% of it with fire management. We've been, ex, we've been expanding it. Um, Luann and I have burned nine times this season and that's nine different stands, 118 acres. We had the, I'm president of the North Florida Prescribed Burn Association. We're sort of a cooperative and we've, the, the, the burn association has burned 1,550 some odd acres around the area, both on PBA member land and on North Florida Land Trust land. Ashton Biological Reserve, some of the other NGOs that have protected land. And we've also helped NRCS with some of their, the burns that they have contracted to landowners. And we, and we don't get paid for it. We just, we just go do it. But, yeah. um, and we also have here done another 90 acres with the help of some of the guys in the PBA. And we did, we did 90 acres in one day, which is the force multiplier benefit of having the PBA because you can take a one day your your weather windows are huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't get that many days that are exactly right where the wind's going to blow the smoke in the right direction or where it's not too wet and it's not too dry and there's not too much wind and the if it's long leaf they haven't started to candle and all of these parameters you have to meet. And so when we get these right days, the PBA is a force multiplier and we got 90 acres done and we've got about another hundred acres to do. Part of that is under the primary transmission lines for Florida Power and Light out of Georgia down toward Orlando, and it's 35 acres is under there, and that is a cooperative effort. Florida Power and Light, um, Fish and Wildlife Commission, us. Um, US, it was actually originally the idea of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And anyway, all that has to be done, and there's, yeah. so there's still more to be done this year. Right. Busy season. <laughs> Fire season. It, it it makes me tired to think about it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, there, I'm in Texas, and we obviously, we burn as well here. And uh, it's been, as soon as things turned around the last few weeks, we had that cold snap in February, and then things turned around, and I started, you know, seeing fires and the weather the weather folks like if you see smoke, and they put on the they they show on their radar. These are all the different prescribed burns going on, and uh, it's it's definitely a busy season. I can't imagine being well, in charge of all of that. Well, you know, Florida is, and, and somehow we don't think it would be this way, but Florida has been under Jim Carls, who was our former head of the Florida Forest Service, and then under the new 
um, director of the Florida Forest Service, whose name, forgive me, escapes me at the moment, but he was um, recently employed, appointed when um, Mr. Carls retired, has been one of the leaders and actually the leader in the application of prescribed fire in the United States. Leader. They, they So much gets done, and it doesn't seem like Florida would be, but then when you think about the fact that until sometime in the 50s, it might have been even early 1960s, but certainly into the 50s, Florida was the lowest population southern state. And Florida is a huge cattle-producing state. And it was still the standard that the people that lived here just burned the land. And they and they just did it. And they did it because when they got here, the, the native peoples had been burning the land. And mm-hmm. they and the native peoples, the Seminoles, which were the here at the time, they had and, and the, the peoples that were there before the Seminoles they had been cattle farmers and ranchers trading with the Spanish, and they had been managing this land this way. And, you know, it's a continuation of something that worked and made sense. And because Florida was slow to fill up with people initially, it never quite died out. And because of the cattle farming, it never quite died out. And so it's carried forward. And, and fortunately, we haven't ended up like California where – yeah. yeah, that's a disaster out there. Yeah, yeah. That state is a mess. <laughs> it's kind of beyond my comprehension of 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 where they've gotten to. But yeah, I, well, yeah. you know, in their defense, they thought they were doing the right thing, and then when they realized that they were doing the wrong thing, and this was back, there's a thing called the Little Hoover Commission, which was instituted back in the early part of the 20th century, 19 something, whatever, way long time ago. And they study difficult issues and, and produce working ideas to the California legislature. Well, in, I think, February of 2018, 2018, when the bot, which is when the bottom finally fell out out there in later in the year, they produced, a, they, they delivered their paper about the use of prescribed fire as one of the fixes for what was wrong in California. And there's a long um, NPR piece, WQED, I think, put it together. Um, it's called Fire on the Mountain. And it talks a little bit about it, but the Little Commission report. Now, if it came out in February of 2018, you can well rest assured that it was started a year before. And yeah. it was started because they already knew they had a problem before then. So this isn't something they just discovered. Yeah. They knew they had a mess for a long time. And the Little Hoover Commission tells them, look, you need to do prescribed fire. And let me, let me, and when I say Florida's progressive, so here, here's how progressive Florida is. Tomorrow morning, I get up and look at the weather and conditions have changed. Tomorrow's not a good day to burn based on what the weather's going to do. But if I was to wake up in the morning and something happened, the, the, the Noah missed it. And the fire weather forecast has changed significantly. And I've got 15 or 18 acres over here. We've been waiting for the right weather to burn. I grab my prescription. I get on the I get on the internet. You know, I hook up with the Florida Forest Service. I pull everything up. I fill out all my information, and I apply for a burn permit. Sometimes in less than 15 minutes, I will have a burn permit. Oh wow. Now, that's because I'm certified 
we're burning our own land. There are things that make that easier, but that that's that is not an unusual situation. We we generally apply for burn permits the morning that we want burn permits. That's There's crazy. been many of the time Luann and I have applied for burn permits ten eleven we realize that this is perfect and we can go do this little section. You can't do that mess in in California. Yeah. And the and and what they fail to realize is you don't know when the weather's going to be exactly right. They put all these hoops up and all right, let's give them this out too is when you've got mountains and you've got hills and you've got humidities that go as low as they do out there, man, their fire weather, I mean, when it goes out there, I mean, it is a whole different world from what going bad here is, yeah. right? So, you know, give them a little bit of respect <laughs> for how difficult that is. Um, but their, their land managers, they don't have, they, it's almost as if they don't have any faith in their land managers to do the right thing. Whereas in Florida, they do. And I mentioned a minute ago how many burns the prescribed burn, how many acres the prescribed burn association has done and how many burns we've done here on our property. Now, there's a lot of other prescribed burn members. And then there's other folks that are burning. How many prescribed fires have been run in Florida this year alone already? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, mm-hmm. almost the vast majority of them by either landowners or, you know, small groups like us. We haven't screwed it up. Yeah. We haven't had to, I mean, and we're, we're all very careful. You gotta have faith in people. You know, give them, give them some agency. Give them, give them some power. And, and they'll do the right thing generally. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about fire and uplands, well, somewhat uplands, uh, some of your more music areas, too, that you've planted uh, your, your pines out. But you've mentioned also bottomlands. How much bottomland acreage do you have and what other kind of habitats that aren't, you know, that are a little bit different than your pine plantation? What else do you have and what kind of, um, you know, interesting plant life or animal life? Do you have bears on the property? Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, we, okay, so I mentioned the O to O quarter a little while ago. So the Ocala National Forest is the, is one of the bear management units, or the Ocala region is one of the FWC's bear management units, and I think there's five of them across the state. I should know this because we do nuisance bear response for the state of Florida, which means mm. when there's a Nuisance bear causing a problem in the neighborhood. The biologists will send us over there, and we kind of assess the situation so the FWC doesn't have to send their people. And we also trap and move bears for them. So it, I should know all these things because we get a lot of a lot of updates and a lot of information. But the Ocala National Forest is basically at carrying capacity for bears. The O to O corridor is sort of to allow animals that require that much landscape to move around and to fill in the areas where they no longer exist or where they're in smaller numbers. And we've got a lot of bears. I've got one picture from two winters ago of five adult bears in one picture. Oh, wow. We see them, we see them in the front yard. We never leave any food outside. We don't feed the animals outside. Um, 
And when we see them out front, we run out there and yell at them and make noise and run them off, keep them. Because they're basically giant raccoons, and if you can maintain their fear of humans, and the only reason they're coming around humans is food. Invariably, when we go in a neighborhood, generally in the urban interface, where there's a bear problem, they're throwing 10 pounds of dog food outside for four dogs, and it takes the dogs 12 hours to eat it, or they're feeding 42 cats, or they're putting five pounds of bird (laughs) feed out, or not cleaning. It's something to where Barney Bear is going, oh, man, that smells good. they got a dog, a nose better than almost any land animal in North America. I mean, they could smell food for, they tell us miles. Well, you know, he gets he gets a mouthful of, you don't think about the caloric content of bird seed, but it's huge. Mm-hmm. Or he, he gets some of those goodies. Well, he's, he's not stupid. He's going to come look again. And so you kind of have to break him with a habit. Anyway, so we make sure that we don't leave anything here for them to uh, want, and then we annoy the heck out of them when they get close. Yeah. And then we ignore them the rest of the time. Yeah. it's. I mean, that's pretty cool to be able to say, in my front yard, I, I see bears, although you don't want them on your porch. So, <laughs> obviously, no, that's, yeah. I have seen them in the pole barn. And, and, of course, we get snakes in the garage and all of those sorts of things, and you just take a shovel and a, and a bucket, and you thought I was going to take it, say, take a shovel and you whack them. No, you take I was, I was like, no, you can't be doing that. Don't, don't say that. No, we, we scoop them into the bucket and carry them down the road, pitch them off in the woods. In fact, last November, in two weeks, I picked up two different coral snakes in the, in the, uh, garage. And we picked up lots of water moccasins, real water moccasins, not banded water snakes, but, and it's one of the most prevalent snakes out here. That and pygmy rattlers and lots of them. And, you know, you just scoop them in the bucket and down the road they go. And I, I don't know what their home range is, so they may show up back out here in no time. But yeah. we move them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so you asked about the – can you tell I have the habit of running on? Um, no, it's perfect. I just – I enjoy listening to hearing everything you have to say. There's so much to learn. And, and I know your property just has a lot of interesting – Ecological history. It's very cool. So we have seven or eight hundred acres on this, these parcels, more than that, that is either creek swamp, um, or some old growth, low, very low areas that has Sensula and Tomoka mucks as their soil types. And trust me, Sensula and Tomoka mucks are exactly what they sound like. <laughs> I mean, you're just not, not going in there. And there are some old growth trees in those areas. And one, okay, let me segue to the conservation easement. I don't know if you were going to get to that or not. Yeah, we can. Yeah. The the way the conservation easement works is when when you you tran the landowner transfers not title to the land, but title. Insert it is and it does attach to the title. The easement does. Mm-hmm. And you give up the development rights and the rights to do a whole lot of other things. Um, and you retain a certain list of rights and the value of the easement, both to the environment and to the entity that's going to end up in the with the easement, is determined by how much 
rights you want to retain. And if you want to retain too many rights, then there's no reason for anybody to do an easement because you're not protecting anything. Right. One of the beauties of having the North Florida Land Trust help us beyond the fact that navigating the Florida Forever system um, opaque and circuitous, circuitous to say the least. We'd mm-hmm. have never accomplished it without them, and it still took four years. But having their help, we were able to draw some of the lines where no forestry can ever be conducted out beyond the BMP lines, best management practices lines. So we've protected areas that legally could be for harvested at some point. And we also kicked about 160 acres of sand hill completely out of the forestry envelope, and we're working on it for restoration. But those are things that when you have somebody with some knowledge and ability like the land trust, um, they can they can help make happen. So anyway, we've got all of these wetland areas. We've got four of the creeks, as I mentioned, that form Rice Creek. One of those creeks comes up out of a spring at the base of that sand hill I said that we protected. And even during the driest time, it flows. I'm sitting behind me about 50 or 60 yards. There's a creek behind the house. And it has a significant portion of seat flow, which is superficial aquifer, as opposed to the uh, Floridian aquifer. And it never stops flowing. And then there's a third one on the south end that has much the same situation, and it flows in from off the property and flows for about a mile across the property. And it never stops flowing. Well, all of these things have, there's just all kinds of animals out there you can't imagine. We have the, while we were doing our spotted turtle work, um, Jonathan and I, Jonathan's the FWC biologist. We spent, in fact, I talked to him yesterday because when we were, when we were surveying for spotted turtles, at one point we had 12 of them with transmitters on them and we were doing citizen science. They taught Luann and I to take the equipment and go out and every few days track down where they were and fill in all the data so mm-hmm. they didn't have to. It was kicks and grins. But in any event, <laughs> one day where we had been trapping all these areas, we didn't know, we didn't really know where we were going to find. I mean, we didn't find any up, up this creek. But um, I see Jonathan, and he's in some of these seeps on this kind of steep bank. And they're kind of like little puddly areas and, and lots of organic material. And he's kind of digging around and moving around. I said, what are you looking for? And He's looking for the larvae of some kind of special um, dragonfly. Hmm. Fly, I forget. One of the flies. And all of a sudden he finds a little juvenile stage of a salamander of some sort. Little bitty thing. Bigger, not, you know, inch long. Well, make a long story short, we started looking around. Ultimately, we came up with a adult Rusty red salamander. Hmm. It's the first, the first documented rusty red salamander in Peninsular Florida in 60 years. They oh, wow. were concerned that they no longer existed. And subsequent, we have gone back in there and checked a few times, and there's quite a few. Um, there's a pretty good population of it in there, so they're safe in that area. And that that also means that in a couple of these other Areas that we now have under conservation easements, there may be some more populations of them. Wow. And we've also added to the Florida Natural Area's inventory a number of 
not new species, but new to a county or new to a location plants. One of them is a star flower, which it's not endangered or anything, but they're incredibly beautiful, and they didn't have any records in Putnam County. We've hmm. got them. We found Florida anise. There's two different kinds of Florida anise. There's a yellow and a red. We found red in one of these big, out in the middle of one of these, uh, about a 400-acre creek system. And they generally don't find that east of Tallahassee. Right, right. Wow, and that's so that amazing. Actually, and one of the folks from the Florida Museum of Natural History came over here and, and one day and wanted me to show where they were, and he went out there and he got some samples and carried it back so that they could verify everything and put it in their inventory. And there's some other things I'm probably slipping past me at the moment. But there's a lot of diversity. I mean, we've got everything from bobcats to kestrels nesting. Um, we have kites nesting. In fact, today when we were doing the tour with the folks from Riverkeeper, there's a hawk nest down about 200 yards down the road from the cabin. And we stopped there. I was showing it to them. You, and you get lucky in life a lot of times. The female, I guess it's the female, one of them is on the nest. And while we're there, all this ruckus kicks up, and here comes the other one in with a lizard and mm. gives it to the one on the nest and flies off. Like, okay, you know, yeah. nature on cue. Yeah. You don't get that often. And we have lots of lots of otters, um, alligators in the creeks. And in the ditches, I've actually watched a pretty good size one crawl across the yard here from the creek, really high. Um, just all kinds of stuff. It sounds like you could, uh, I don't know, you could almost have a little nature documentary going on. <laughs> you know, someone recording what's happening there and just uh amazing place to live. Well, it, it is if you're interested. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're interested. We tolerate. I mean, let's face it. It's still August in Florida, okay? Even if you love it, it's still August. Yeah. And when the yellow flies go off, it's 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 still horrific. And the ticks and the mosquitoes, and then when it gets wet, and then you have day after day after day of 100% humidity and 90 degrees, and you're far enough inland where you don't get sea breeze. I mean... But then there's six months of the year, maybe a little bit more, where it's more than tolerable and there's so much going on and you get to see this cycle of life out there. And and even during the hot times of the year, you get to see the – you can see changes week by week um, if you're out there. So for us, it's it's good. Yeah. Now, you mentioned giving a tour earlier today. How often do you – give tours and how, I mean, how does that work if people want to come and visit and see, see what all you're doing? Is that is it something you do frequently or just whenever? Normally, normally what we've done is, um, in fact, in two weeks we have the Alachua County group of the Native Plant Society. They want to come um, and we'll show them around, let them walk around, let them feed the insects. Um, Audubon's been out here a bunch of times. We've done some whole homeschool groups. The um, Project Learning Tree, which is a part of University of Florida's outreach, they've done one of their teaching sessions 
teacher planning sessions here or teacher teaching sessions where they get their instructors up to speed. They're going to do that again here this year. We've had three of the master naturalist courses um, out of St. John's County. They'll bring 15 or 20 people at a time. And, and all that's just for asking. We donate trips both to the Riverkeeper. Um, we've done it for the Guantanamo Matanzas National Estuarine Research Reserve to their group, their outreach group. Just any group that wants to learn. I mean, it, I gotta, I gotta make sure I say this correctly. We don't want to just take somebody for a ride in the woods. Right. You want to come and get some education about the woods or, or about the plants. If you, if, if your goal is to learn, then that's, that's us. And we don't, we're not charging for it. It's just, we'll find the time and, and work it in to, for that outreach. But we're not into having somebody come out here just because they want to come out here and ride around just for a day in the woods. Right. That's, you know, our, we generally want to be, we want to be there. We want to be explaining what's going on. We want to make sure that people leave with information that's also not just valuable to them and that they feel like they've left with something, but also so that it makes them advocates for land protection, water protection, that sort of thing. Right, right. Now, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, how long it takes to – all the things you ha- want to do in, in protecting the property and getting it into yeah, – I mean, just doing the list of things that you want to do. <laughs> and you say, what's the next thing on my list? But what are some long-term goals of yours for – preserve and I mean maybe even just some short-term goals in the next five years what's on your agenda that you want to tackle well part of it is this project with Florida Power and Light up under the power lines and I know that doesn't sound particularly exciting but what they had been mowing it up there and it had become choked with woody vegetation mostly sand live oaks and some other things, Chapman's oaks, whatever the heck they are up there. And it is adjacent to some areas that we have treated to eliminate or to knock those things back to a more natural area level. There's a lot of gopher turtles up there. There are pine snakes and indigo snakes. We've documented both, which are both species of special concern in Florida. Um mm-hmm. And so if we can make that project work and the cooperativeness of it such that that 30 and 35 acres is, doesn't sound like very much, but such that that 35 acres functions more usefully for the plants and the animals and everything that live in a sandhill environment, that'll be good. We're going, we're con- working further on our own restoration because the previous landowner planted slash pine up on that sand hill and it's a project to change that and that's going to happen way after we're dead and then we've got a whole lot of stands that are 14 to 16 years old now 
that are getting ready to be thinned in the next next couple of years. One of them we're going to do here in a few weeks. And those are going to go into the burn rotation. And that, too, is going to be good for the, um, you know, good for the environment out here. So there's. And and I could add I can add stuff to this list that I want to do, <laughs> but one of the great things about this is every morning you get up and you look at the list and say, "What am I not going to get to today?" Yeah, and it's the it's the majority of it. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it's good to wake up and have something to do every day. I, I think. All right, this is almost politics. I think that what you see on television, where the goal is to sit on a beach with a beer and be done where the goal is just to play golf or just to go fishing I don't think that serves the human animals psych very well it's probably not the right word but no that makes sense psyche yeah (laughs) I think I think our lives are enriched and satisfied by being able to look behind us and see that we've accomplished something and and what we want to and, and we want to accomplish something that both we approve of and, and you know it's nice if other people approve of it. It's not mandatory. Um, you know, I really care what I think more than I care about what other people think. But I think most yeah. of us are that way. Um, yeah. But the goal is not to do nothing. The goal is to do as long as you can. And so this satisfies that urge. So what would you say to people who are interested in doing what you did, whether they're in Florida or Texas or Minnesota, wherever, what's, you know, about getting into land conservation? I mean, it's probably not necessarily accessible to everybody, but the folks who are, who it is accessible to, what, what would you, advice would you give them? All right. First off, let me let me say this. We're not that unique. There and 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 when I say that, there are so many private landowners. I, I, my friend Charlie Farr, they've got 50 acres close to Jacksonville. They've got it under a conservation easement. It butts up to a lake. It's got a little bit of sand hill on it, and they they're doing fire and they're doing restoration. And it's like an island of of life in in what's fast becoming an urban area. Um, and, and there are innumerable other landowners, private landowners, they love their land. They don't want it ruined. They, they, they are not excited about the idea of what Miami looks like or they don't, and they don't want Florida or Montana or South Georgia or wherever they happen to be. They don't want it to become the disaster that's California. They don't want to see Anyway, so there, there's a lot of people that want to do this, and there's a lot more folks than we realize that are engaged in this. The PBA, so many of those folks, private landowners, some of them are working on conservation easements. Some already have their land in conservation easements. What I would say to these folks, because I know there's an audience of people that as soon as you talk about protecting their land, their ears perk up. But when they go to try to do it, it's very difficult. The hoops and the steps, and it's not clear. Even if you want to, it's not clear and it's not easy. Is mm-hmm. go find, go find a land trust, 
a good reputable land trust in your area. Or go check with the NRCS and, and see what they've got going on. Ask them, tell them, hey, here's what I want to do. I want to protect this land. Find me some resources. So, you know, go go seek help. Don't look at it. Don't like I did. I looked at the um, Florida DEP website when we first started out the whole project about doing Florida forever, and I was. And I'm not. You can tell I'm not easily dissuaded from things. I'm particularly persistent. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is daunting. How in the heck are we ever going to do that? And my thought was, well, we probably can't, but we're going to try it. Well, we couldn't do it alone. Couldn't make it happen. So go seek help. And there are people out there who want to make – there's land trusts all over this country. And they will help you make it happen. So that's what I would say. All right. Now, I do want to kind of wind down. I've taken up a lot of your time. But do you have any, you know, final thoughts um, about, you know, what you've done um, that you'd like to share and then where folks can just find more information about the, the wetland preserve and uh, just getting more involved in conservation, particularly in Florida, because this is, you know, a, a Florida-based podcast. But you mentioned the River Keepers earlier, but any other organizations that folks should be attuned to? Well, I've mentioned the North Florida Land Trust a number of times. The Lateral Conservation Trust does really good work. Um, they're one of our we donate to them and we support them and they are very good people over there and they, they work very hard and they, and there are other land trusts in the state. And obviously you can go to our website and look at it, but it's not a professional website. We sort of did it and it, it's pretty good. Ashley's actually good at that and, and she's actually does some videos. In fact, I'm doing a uh, class at University of North Florida in a couple of three weeks and two of the videos that she's put together um, have been sent along with that little Hoover Commission um, piece I mentioned earlier and the stuff from um, Stanford and Oregon State about the effects of uh, wildfire smoke and prescribed fire smoke on human health and a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, it, it's gone to them. But not so much go on our website, but go look at the Longleaf Alliance. Go look at Tall Timbers Research Station. Go on... Go to the University of Florida's IFAS land steward and read some of what's there. And if you want a really good description of Florida's various land types, because there's a lot of nuance to them, the Native mm-hmm. Plant Society's description of Florida land types is very good. I mean, I was, I was, so surprised that it was about the best one I could find. It, at least it fit in my mind with what I see when I'm outside. And it's well done. So there's a lot of, is, you don't necessarily have to come from us, but there, you know, understand that there's all of these people working on these things in tall timbers and all of, the, all of these NGOs, they need supporters and support them and, and make it where they've got the resources when that Landowner comes to them and say, "Can you ha- says, can you help me protect this land? The land trust has to have the money to to have staff to have the expertise to make that happen, and they also buy some of their own land." Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me to talk about uh, the impact of 
protecting land for to also protect water and how it all works together. And I think my listeners are, you know, are Florida Trail hikers and Rice Creek Sanctuary is right there adjacent to your property. And so they're very familiar with Rice Creek and it's not just when they're hiking, when they're hiking through on any portion of the Florida Trail in Florida, it's not just about that little single track that they're hiking through. It's about all the other components that go around uh, those, those lands that they're hiking through and your, you protecting your part is also protecting Rice Creek, which is also protecting the Florida Trail. So I appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge and hopefully it'll get people inspired to learn a little bit more about, about Florida and, and the conservation efforts, uh, that are available out there. Well, let me mention one thing because I, I kind of let the Florida Trail drop off my brain. So, and, one of the things we did in the conservation easement, and this is another thing that the land trust helped us with, with the verbiage for this, is we have a, a mile of the Florida Trail passes through our property. And we enshrined it in the easement such that ensuing landowners cannot kick them off. Because every now and then they do get kicked off private land. In fact, it happened just south of State Road 20. Mm-hmm. So we got that enshrined. And yesterday morning, at, we were down there off one of our roads with Jeff from Florida Trail Association and Water Management District folks looking at the potential of putting a spur down to a particularly awesome cypress tree that you that's in Rice Creek. It's not the number three or number six, whatever this huge thing is that's only about five hundred yards from where I'm sitting. But it is it is still massive and it's still trek worth trekking out to, except for the only way you can get to it is from our side. So we're working on a way to make that at least certain times of the year and certain certain situations to make it accessible to the public. So the Florida Trail Association, that's a pretty good bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that is exciting, and I know folks will uh, – yeah, that's my goal this, this season of this podcast is to bring more land managers to the podcast instead of just talking to hikers, getting a little bit more of a roundabout – uh, idea of what where these people are hiking let them know a little bit more about it instead of just hiking through and not paying attention and knowing anything about what they're hiking through or the history about what they're hiking through so i appreciate you that. sharing your knowledge that's it for this episode i hope you enjoy the insights ben had to offer and i know that i certainly learned a lot from listening to him talk i could have asked so many more questions and it was a type of conversation that you'd want to pour a cup of coffee and just absorb all the information he has to offer you can find the show notes for the podcast at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com and I'm on Instagram as orangeblazepodcast. I will be taking a short break in May and will return with new episodes in June. As always, thanks for listening and happy hiking.